Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 9th, 2022. Uh, it's a Saturday, a weekend. Uh, we've done a lot of shows recently on the environment. We did one earlier uh, in the week with the English environmental writer George Monbiot. He's an activist. He has a really interesting new book out called Regenesis. It's about how to feed the world without devouring the planet. But the issue of the environment is complicated. The idea of protecting nature isn't always perhaps quite as simple as it appears. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had Canadian young Canadian activist Lindsay Borgon on the show, has a new book out, Tree Thieves, which in some ways is a defense of tree thieves in the 2020s. Um, the issue, of course, is how to tell stories about the environment. We've done shows about that with two very talented storytellers, Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba DeMuth, both authors and writers, um, who have a new workshop at Brown University on telling stories about the environment. Um, we also did a show recently with Harvard University's Martin Pushner, who looks throughout the history of literature of the world to learn how to tell stories. We've also done shows about the history of art recently. We did one last weekend uh, with Daniel Birnbaum about uh, Kandinsky and the spiritual origins of uh, modern art, um, of abstract art. Uh, we talked about a new book or a, a reissued book, The Sounding Cosmos. What we're doing today is bringing together those two worlds, the worlds of telling stories about the environment and modern art, uh, with my guest, Aviva Ramani. She's a uh, a well-known uh, eco-artist, uh, maybe she'll correct me, I hope those are the right words to describe her amongst many other things. And indeed, she has a book out now, Divining Chaos, the Autobiography of an Idea, which in many ways is a book about how to tell stories about the environment. Um, Aviva is joining us from the Pyrenees Mountains, an idyllic part of the Pyrenees Mountains in France. Aviva, uh, are you in the business of telling different stories, both as a writer and an artist, about the environment? Has that been your goal over the last many years? I think you put your finger on it. I've said to many people lately that we're not only in an environmental war, but the war is being fought by narrative. And unfortunately, the dominant narrative right now is a fairy tale that there's a white knight someplace on a white horse who's going to rescue the maidens. And of course, it's exactly the opposite. The white knight is not going to rescue anybody but himself. The Aviva, stories, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Aviva. Uh, your book is in part, Divining Chaos is an autobiography. It's a story of your childhood. Um, your teenage years, your, 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 your narrative of becoming an eco-artist. Um, how does that story fit into the broader story of 
the struggle, the as you say, to, 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 to tell the story of what's happening in the world today in terms of the environment. I think a lot of things have been marginalized and we're seeing an, an example of the consequences with ecocide across the planet. Uh, in rainforests, for example, uh, in so many ecosystems. My premise in the book is that artists can change those kinds of paradigms. And the kind of change that I'm interested in has two aspects of it to it. One is that there, there are physics to the process of change and anybody can tap into that. For example, in the premise of the butterfly effect, the idea is that a very small action can have a huge impact. In the book, the story I tell is how art can in effect be a black swan. Art can introduce something unexpected into a system that can eventually change it in a series of cascades by affecting other systems, other people, other ideas, until instead of relying on cliches of some powerful man or patriarch or government to rescue us, we recognize that we are our own rescuers. And the first place we start to rescue ourselves is in our relationship to nature and to each other a relationship that's far more empathetic, compassionate, and realistic than the one we have right now. Art has always been a great force in culture, but more recently in the past couple hundred years, it has become the handmaiden to various forms of power. And even the kind of art that concerns us in the environment very often is about illustrating science rather than introducing new ideas. And the kinds of art that I'm interested in are the kinds of art that not only propose new ideas, but propose practical solutions to ecocide and the kinds of disasters we're seeing in nature right now. It's interesting you bring up the, the word, the issue of empathy. We did a, an interview yesterday with the Atlantic writer Ed Yong on animals and how they see themselves. He has the cover story on the Atlantic this month, How Animals Understand the World. He also has a new book out, An Immense World. How bound up in what you call ecocide is our lack of empathy, not just with nature, not just with trees and the environment, but other creatures, other species. Well, look at what we're doing to the planet. We're killing ourselves. It's really not just ecocide, for example, of forest systems. We're killing other people. So we're committing eco-suicide because we depend on nature. At the very least, we need to recognize that we're animals too. We're dependent on all the same things that whales and turtles and deer and even spiders are dependent on. We need some clean air, some clean water, we don't need to be burned alive and we don't need to be flooded. So that's a question of what are we going to be empathetic for? Are we going to be empathetic for the superheroes and superheroines amongst us or for ourselves, for each other, for all the animals with whom we share the planet and the trees, all the other 
and not just uh, mammalian animals, but all the other species, the fish, the insects, the birds depend on insects, the trees that they live in, the grasses. There's so many ways in which the planet is being decimated these days. And all those ways are ways that we depend on for our own survival. So when we kill off all of nature, we're really killing off ourselves. We're really expressing our lack of empathy for ourselves, for our children, for our neighbors. How do your book, um, the new book, uh, Divining Chaos, is not only your own autobiography, but the autobiography of the ideas that you're talking about. It focuses on two particular um, artistic uh, works or initiatives. Uh, one, the Blue Sea Symphony, uh, here we have an image, and the other, Ghost Nests, uh, Ghost Nets, two very ambitious, uh, artistic, I don't know what you call them, polemics, schemes, projects that you've launched. How do these works, Blue Tree Symphony and Ghost Nets, address uh, the eco-crisis? And, and how does it how does it address it in different ways to authors like George Monbiot? Well, I would rather compare myself to someone like Kim Stanley Robinson. Fair enough. And, okay. I, I, you know, I just brought up Monbiot because he was on the show right. earlier this week. Right. I, the reason I suggest Kim Stanley Robinson is because in the Ministry of the Future, he proposes a very inventive idea which is a different economic system. And he proposes it by first setting a scene that's very dramatic about a heat wave in India. The two projects that you reference, Ghost Nets, Ghost Nets were inspired by the lost fishing drift nets that get loose from ships and they go on killing everything in the ocean for at least seven years. Then they end up in the Pacific garbage patch where they catch all kinds of sea life. And when I first heard about them in 1989, I thought, what a fantastic metaphor for what we're doing to ourselves and to the planet. The fishing nets are invisible because they're plastic monofilament. The fish don't see them. They swim into the trap of the nets and they get caught on the gills and they suffocate they also trap all kinds of other sea mammals, birds, uh, whales, dolphins, and they go on fishing invisibly long after they're detached from the ships. And that's what we do with ourselves. We develop patterns and routines of behavior and thought that trap and kill us just as, in, just as seriously as the drift nets do. So I thought if I tried to do everything uh, different from what was a familiar pattern for me, I might come to a different state. And that's exactly what I did. I bought the town dump on an island off the coast of Maine, and I started restoring it to flourishing wetlands. What you're looking at now is the process of restoring an estuarine system that had been buried to create a man-made wharf. Yeah, we're seeing some images, for, for people who are just listening, um, we're seeing some images of, um, of Eva's ghost nest project. Thank you. 
And as I watched the property change and the relationship between freshwater and seawater change, I began to understand that the process of change is something I had to understand. And eventually I did a dissertation that relied heavily on trying to understand the thermodynamics of change. And it was out of understanding that entire process that I developed something called trigger point theory, which is entirely based in physics. And then I started applying it to other kinds of restoration. For example, the legal system, which is what the Blue Tree Symphony was about. Yeah, so and tell us a little bit about Blue Tree Symphony, which is a very visually stunning project. Um, it's bound up in sound and also in intellectual property. Yes, thank you. The Blue Tree Symphony began when um, anti-natural gas activists approached me and said they thought they wanted to copyright a forest to protect it from natural gas corporations. And I said right off that we weren't going to copyright the forest because that's the kind of thing that Monsanto does, but we were going to copyright the relationship between humans and the forest system and the soil. So when I looked at the maps that the corporations had provided under duress, um, I thought they looked like they were creating corridors for the forest that might be imagined as musical lines. So from that, I went to creating a score that would actually impede heavy machinery and the notes of the score became individual trees that were GPS located so that in an aerial pattern, they created a symphony. That was in one third mile long measures across North America with various teams of activists and artists. Eventually from that, I developed a full score by interpolating the topography into instrumentation. And now I'm working on an opera based on that project. But in between, we tried to stop the natural gas pipelines by copywriting the entire work and by copywriting the work on the trees, we were implicitly challenging the taking of the land from private property owners and that meant that I was looking at the relationship between eminent domain law, which is one kind of ownership, and copyright law for artists, which is another kind of ownership. We eventually went to a mock trial where we could adjudicate the legal theory, and we did win an injunction in the mock trial. So we now have the template of how to prosecute this kind of problem. We want it on the basis of the standing of the artwork. And now that's become the libretto for the opera I'm working on. It's fascinating, it's a very ambitious project. You're also the author, you're a prolific writer, author, artist, um, Aviva. You're the co-editor of a new book, uh, also out this year by New Village Press, Eco Art in Action. Do you think eco art is by definition multimedia does it need to involve photography and music and creativity and text as, as as your projects clearly do 
Blue Tree Symphony um, and, uh, and Ghost Nets in particular? Well, as we often say in the field, every echo artist will have their own definition. We actually crafted a definition that's on Wikipedia and it's also in that book. But I think the big difference between echo art and perhaps many other genres in the art world is that it's really about systems. That's my personal opinion. Instead of siloing the work of an artist into particular disciplines like only photography, only performance, only film, or only painting, these all become tools in, on our palette of how we can change things. So when you're doing that, you're not really working solely in an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary manner. You're working in the liminal space in between forms. And Nikolashud Basarab, one of the theorists on transdisciplinarity, who was also a physicist, has commented that that's where we're going to find the solutions. We're not going to find the solutions in fragmented ways of thinking. We're going to find the solutions in looking in between to see the relationships between various agents in a system. And then we can actually change the system. Uh, Aviva, some people have suggested that the eco-art practices of today were born in 1970s feminism. We've done some books on feminism and women in art. We did a show, for example, with Charlotte Mullins, who has an interesting book out, A Little History of Art, that focuses on female artists. You're not just a, um, an eco-artist, a multimedia eco-artist and writer, but also uh, you, you talk in, a little bit in your book about your feminism. Is there a connection between um, uh, women's, the women's movement in the 70s, female art, female artists, female empowerment, and eco-art? I would say so. And But first of all, I want to compliment you on the books that you've been covering. I think it well, takes... Thank you so much, Aviva. I really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate your invitation very much to talk about these ideas, but not everybody is paying attention to them. So what you're doing, I think, is extremely important. And it's no accident, and obviously my work is political, it's no accident we're, that we're simultaneously seeing the reversal of Roe versus Wade and the hampering of the EPA. I believe these things are connected. If you want to talk about ecocide, what you're really talking about is a triumph of white supremacy, of fascism and racism that marginalized everybody except a very small number of people. Some of them are white males, but they're not all males. They're generally people who are incapable of compassion for any group except their own tribe. So I take that point, um, but we have two things simultaneously going on. We have, uh, for example, the work of people like Marlins, which talk about the rise of female artists. We also did a show recently with Glenda Gilmore, the historian who's written a wonderful book about the African-American artist, Romare Bid. It seems as if the art world is becoming increasingly represented by women, by men and women of color. 
and yet the environment gets worse and worse. Are they diverging? <laughs> In a way, yes, unfortunately, I have to say. Um, there's a hell of a lot more money on one side than there is on the other. And it's very hard to change entrenched patterns of behavior and thinking. If people are used to drinking out of plastic straws and throwing them on the sidewalk, it's gonna be very hard to change their thinking. But I do think that there's a parallel movement and I see it in young people a lot of people who are just desperate to save themselves and each other for that matter. And that is a matter of diversity. So it's not like women and black people are taking over the art world. It's more that the art world is beginning to reflect real life that is extremely diverse. I was just recently in Paris and I was really struck by how diverse the population is. And it's refreshing. You only have to, I, I'm talking to Aviva from California, you're on, on, in the Pyrenees, in, in, in San Francisco, often you only have to look out the window to see the consequences of our environmental crisis. The fires, for example, in Sonoma and Napa, a couple of years ago made the sky yellow. I'm assuming that eco-artists like yourself have enough material to work on. It's probably rather hard to be a political artist and avoid the environment, isn't it? Well, that's interesting because there is a direction in contemporary art of social practice art. And I think very often it's primarily about human relationships to other humans. It's not really about environmental justice in a sense that includes the entire ecosystem. I, th I think that's a mistake. Uh, the minute that you exclude anything, you're in trouble. But how can you really talk about fairness and justice if you don't talk about equal opportunity to clean water, for example? I think many people, even in progressive politics, do make that distinction. They do fragment the people over here and whales over there and forests someplace um, in another place. And they don't really get it how all these things are intersectional. That the whole planet as was once postulated is Gaia, a living entity. I really feel that here where I am in Olu Les Bains because the landscape is absolutely magnificent. And, and that's in the Pyrenees. Uh, mountains in France. Correct. Just over the um, beautiful part of, of the world. It really is. And I just came from the farmer's market where the, the food is unbelievable. Aviva, are there artists in the US and Europe who are doing equally important work as you in, in works like Blue, Blue Tree Symphony and Ghost Nets? What other artists, eco-artists, would you advise people to look at? It's hard to single out my colleagues because so many are doing really, really interesting things. It happens that a number of us, and particularly women eco-artists, are coming out with books all at the same time. So some of those books include a work by Dominique Maiseau, 
Betsy Damon just recently came out with a book and you've referred to the Echo Art in, in Action book, which I think would be very helpful to many people. Yeah, this uh, came out earlier in the year. It's, a, it's an edited thing. Yeah. What did you and, learn, um, Aviva, from writing a book? Of course, when, when one reads Divining Chaos, you're just reading text. It doesn't come with a, a multimedia component. What did you learn as an artist about the challenge of, of writing? That's a big question, but uh, there's a big difference between writing an artist statement or a poem or even an article and writing a book because you have to sustain a narrative. And in writing a, a memoir or a book like this that goes over several different disciplines and involves some chaotic and com complex ideas, I had to continually weave and reweave the threads of a narrative in a way that was compelling and relatively entertaining. Uh, I prepared for that by not just reading other books, but studying the structure of other books. For example, the work of Kim Stanley Robinson, he was really helpful. Yeah, Robinson's books come up. I, I really, he's probably a tough guy to get on the show, but I'd love to, to get them on the show to talk about He's great. But one of the things that's really interesting structurally about how he puts together his books is he brings you along in the narrative and you think everything's perfectly normal. And then he kind of hits you over the head with something that's completely not normal and leaves you on a cliffhanger until you get into the next chapter. So just from a structural point of view, I thought that was very inspiring as a model. And I did my best to come close to that. It's very well, different than artwork. What did writing the book though, how, what did it teach you about art itself? Um, when you say Kim Stanley Robinson hits you over the head, in a way, your your work is also in a, a form of hitting your viewers, your listeners on the head, Blue Tree Symphony and Ghost Nets. Do you think that the writing of this book, um, Divining Chaos, the, in the autobiography of an idea, has it made you a better artist? I think it has made me a more patient and tolerant artist. I think before I began the book, my attitude was very didactic about what's good art and what isn't good art, what really can change situations and what can't change situations. And the more I've been forced to think about my own thinking and where my thinking came from, the more I have learned to be more expansive in what really changes people. Sometimes it really is a painting. Sometimes it's a song. Like you your, uh, your warming skies over the Louisiana Bayou seen from a train window. I think that's a wonderful piece of art. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, that came out of a trip I took after Katrina from Northern New England down through to Baton Rouge. And what I was looking for was how climate change was affecting, that was in 2007, how climate change was affecting all these different communities, particularly in the Rust Belt. And I did that during hurricane season and I was 
fortunate, if you want to put it that way, to arrive in uh, New Orleans during a hurricane. So I could see firsthand uh, not just the damage that had previously been done by Katrina, but also um, what was a continuing problem. Because many problems at that point hadn't been solved, and they really haven't been solved since. Well, this is all important and interesting stuff. Uh, Aviva Romani's Divining Chaos, the Autobiography of an Idea, is just out. It's an important book and particularly important, I think, if you're interested in both the history and practice of eco-art and of feminist eco-art in particular. Congratulations, um, Aviva, on the new book, or books indeed, because you have eco-art in action out as well, which you co-edited. Uh, what else should people be reading in addition to the Kim Stanley Robinson stuff that you mentioned earlier. What other books have you been reading recently? I think one of the best books that's come out recently is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmerer. And there are a couple of reasons for that. It's a good book, uh, but it's also from the, uh, it's simultaneously from the point of view of a woman who understands Native American traditional knowledge and is also a scientist herself. And she's able to blend the two practices in a very accessible way to understand how ecosystems work. 